Chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne a scroll written on front and back and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? Some people, so it's got seven seals on it, and some people have wondered, how is this sealed? Or is it a scroll rolled up with seven seals across it? Or is it a scroll that you start rolling up and seal? Like, you know, when you roll it up and then in the crevice there, you seal it and then you roll it more and then you seal it again, and you roll it more and you seal it again until you get the last and outward seal. And so some people have said this. The people who argue that it's sealed and rolled and sealed and rolled and sealed and rolled seven times argue this because it seems that they break a seal and then they execute a judgment. So it sounds like you break a seal and read something, then you execute and you break another one and they say, well, that makes sense logically. None of this is logic, okay? This is all metaphorical imagery. It's never meant, analogies only stand on three legs. You're not meant to read this. What's interesting is nowhere does the text ever say that they read the scroll. It just says the seals are broken and the judgments are executed. Nowhere in the ancient world do you ever see a scroll like this. The way that scrolls worked is in the ancient world, you have a scroll, and the way that you make it is you take papyrus strips. If you're really, really, really wealthy, you do vellum, and vellum is animal skin. But that costs a lot of money. But the normal people, and meaning like the vast majority, like 80 to 90% of the population, we use papyrus. Papyrus is a reed that grows in the Red Sea. Okay, like you've seen reeds in, around lakes or ponds or whatever. And you would wet this down, and you would get it really wet, and then you would take a knife and you would strip, you would go down the length of the reed, and you would cut these strips off. And you just keep doing it and doing it like pe- peeling a carrot, except everything would be uniform and consistent in shape. And you would have all these strips of reed. And you would take them and you would lay them down horizontally, left to right. And you would lay them side by side by side from top to bottom. And you would lay them out wet. And then you would take strips and you would lay them down vertically from top to bottom over top of that. And then you would lay some kind of book on it. And you would let it dry out. And you would have this. Then what you would do is you would take these square sections and you would stitch them together and you would stitch them into a scroll. And then you would roll them from both sides, from the end, both ends to the middle. An average scroll was anywhere between 32 to 34 feet long when it was all said and done. And in, so Kings, the book of Kings is one book. Why is it two books in your Bible? Because when you got to 32 feet and you had more to say, you had to get a second scroll. And if you read Samuel in Kings, you will find that it breaks very abruptly right at the end of 1 Samuel and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles because they just went to the next scroll. Luke, most people believe that Luke and Acts are a two-part series, and the reason Luke is round is because he ran out of scroll, and Acts is the second scroll. Because even it begins kind of like exactly where Luke picks up, um, picks up where, lets off with. When you write on this, you would write on the side where the, the, the papyrus is dried, but it's going horizontal. Because if you write on the other side, every time you're writing from left to right, or left or right to left, if it's Hebrew, you constantly hit the bump. And if you've ever written a piece of paper with something under it, and you constantly hit those bumps, it's absolutely annoying. And if you're writing something very important, like a legal document or the Word of God, you don't want all your letters just to look like crap. And so you would write from left to right. And so legal, so documents were done left to right. There's only, now we're told that this scroll is written on both sides. 
There's only one reason, two reasons, sorry, that you would ever write on both sides. And that's if one, you were super poor and you're willing to go through the annoyance of doing that because it's way better than spending money that you don't have when you need to feed your family. Or if it was a legal document and you didn't want to risk anything being another scroll that can be lost, you want to keep it all together. And so a lawyer writing a, 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 um, a legal document of laws or most important, a contract or a covenant or um, a will would all be written on one document. And if you didn't have much to say, it would be written on one side. If you had a lot to say, it would be written on both sides. And so in the context here, this is a legal document. It's written on both sides. What you do is you roll it up, and once you roll these both sides from left into the center and from right into the center, you would have two tubular roll-ups. And then what you would do, if it was a super important document, you would seal it. You can't just put a drop of wax in the middle of this crack because it's probably just going to drop in, and it's hard to take your signet ring and stamp it in. So what you do is you take another piece of parchment, and you would wrap the scroll around it so that you would have a flat surface, and then you would seal the overlap. And if it was a really important document, you would put multiple seals on it to really show that it hasn't been tampered with. In fact, the last will of Vespasian, or Domitian, I forget which one it was, had seven seals on it, showing how important it is. This means, remember, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Savior of all kind, uh, that's all been used by Caesars. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm the ultimate version of that. So this is a legal document, a will and testament of God. And it's sealed seven times because seven is the number of completion. So the question is, what is this scroll? It's the title deed to the earth, right? When you go to buy a car or a house and you can't afford it, you take a loan from the bank. And do you get your title deed? No, the bank holds it. And you pay your mortgage. When you finally pay your car or your mortgage off, then the bank mails you your title deed and it's a piece of paper that says you actually legally own this. Way, 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 way back in Genesis 1, God titled deed the earth to Adam and Eve. He made them rulers over the earth. Let us make humanity in our image to rule and subdue the earth. Everything is yours. Work it, take care of it like it's your house, and expand the garden. The earth was gifted to Adam and Eve as vice regents representing Yahweh as the image. You make creation look like God. You are the image. You are to reflect it. So they were given the title to the earth. But when they submitted to their own desires, their own autonomy, to Satan, the serpent, whatever you want to call it, they lost the title deed. They lost their right to rule the earth. And we see this all throughout creation. And if you want a really good example of you losing your right to rule and subdue the earth, tell your cat to come to you. And when he just looks at you and stares at you like you're an idiot, that's a reminder that you've lost your right to rule and subdue. Or go stand in front of a storm and tell it to stop. And when it kills you, congratulations, you discovered you lost your right to rule and subdue. You've lost it. And as a result, the world has not gone into chaos. When there's no one to take care of the neighborhood, neighborhoods fall apart. 
And we've seen this in post-apocalyptic movies or when like Chernobyl and stuff. It's like just overgrown with nature and absolute chaos. And so the idea is they lost this right. And so sin has come into the world. And now sin is ruling the world. And who fills the vacuum? Satan. Jesus tells us that Satan is the prince of this air. He's the ruler of this kingdom. But God didn't give it to him. God gave it to you. But you don't have the capability to take it back. It requires you paying for your sins, which you can't do. You can pay for your sin, but then you die and you stay dead for all eternity. And you can't conquer the grave and stuff. But here's the thing. Only a human can reclaim the title deed to the earth. Only a human. Because God gave it to a human, and God is not in the business of taking things back when he's given them to you. Humanity is left with this conundrum. So in this hand, he has this title deed of the earth. Now it would also be the promises of God, because all the promises, starting with Genesis 49, one day I will send a king, and he will tether his kingdom to joy and righteousness and life. Numbers 24, I will send my star. The morning star will rise up out of Jacob and he will bring the scepter and he will crush the heads and the skulls of his enemies and establish his rule on earth. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, the king of Israel, and I will make all your enemies your footstool as you step on their bodies and crush them. The prophet says a day will come when a king will rule the world and establish the cosmic mountain of God and all the nations will come flooding back to it and there will be no more evil and no more sin and the garden of Eden will flow into the whole world. Like right over and over again, God has made these promises of what it will look like when the title deed is given back to its rightful owner and everything can be reestablished and we can clean house and fix the world the way it was supposed to be. That's what this is. It's the title deed of the earth. It's all the promises of God to restore the title deed and make all things right again. That's what's his hand. And it's sealed seven times. And so this is a scroll. Now some people have debated as the scroll's seals are broken, are they breaking all the seals and then we have the seven seal judgments or is each seal judgment happening after each broken seal? Doesn't matter. Either way, you still have seven judgments. Okay, and once again, this is a metaphor. So you can't push this all the way to its extreme. So God is sitting in the heaven with this scroll and it's the title to the earth. And right now, technically, no human can claim the title deed because they are what? Sinners. And it's pre-Christ. It's so clear that there's no humans in heaven in the vision of chapter 4. They're singing about the sovereignty of God. There's chaos reigning in the world around them. So no, Christ hasn't died yet. And there's a scroll in his hand and no human can take the title deed of the earth. And Satan is the squatter living in the house because the owners are gone, so to speak. And he's doing whatever he wants, drugs and messing everything up and all that kind of stuff. I saw a powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So who is worthy to claim the title deed to the earth? Who can take the title deed back, pay the mortgage off, so to speak, kick Satan as a squatter out and restore the house to what it was originally meant to be and make sure that that never happens again. That's the idea. But no one in heaven, meaning no angel, no four living, four living creatures, 
none of the elders, or under the earth, nothing in hell or in the sea or anything like that, or on earth, sorry, nothing in heaven or on earth, no animal, no human, no creature, or under the earth is able to open the scroll and look into it. No one's worthy. No one has this power. Nobody is capable of doing it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no angel has the ability to destroy Satan and kick him out. So I began to weep bitterly. This, this, the idea here is uncontrolled, racking sobs that just racked the whole body. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders, explaining how things work in heaven, said to me, Stop weeping. Look. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This lion of Judah imagery comes from Genesis 49, 9-10. And Genesis 49 is the first prophecy of the Messiah ever. And it says, Behold, Judah, you are a lion's cub, a lioness, who dares rouse you. When they do, they will be destroyed from you. You will be the carry the ruler's staff, the scepter, and it will not depart from you until it comes to the one whom it belongs. He will tie his kingship to the vine, his donkey to the vine, wine, abundance of life and joy. His eyes will be darker than wine. His character will be filled with joy. His teeth will be whiter than milk. His robe will be dipped in wine meaning that he will be clothed with joy and all that kind of stuff. And his teeth will be whiter than milk, meaning his words will be full of life and joy. That's the prophecy. It's the first prediction that this Messiah is the Lion of Judah. So as we go on throughout the Bible, Judah rises up, and its most greatest example of kingship is David and Solomon. But David and Solomon failed to be the Messiah that God intended. They failed to really, truly rule Israel in the way that God intended. And as a result, David violated a woman and killed people to cover it up. Solomon turned to idols and all kinds of stuff, and it just never was realized with them. And so God had to come into this Davidic line. And as they went deeper and deeper into sin with the kings that came after them and after them and after them, he came down in Isaiah chapter 7 and says, The axe is at the tree. The same words of John the baptizer. I'm going to cut down Israel in the north, and I'm going to cut down Judah, and you're going to be carried off into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. <laughs> but then he says, But don't worry. A shoot from David will rise up out of the root. The trunk has been cut down. Now, this is an olive tree. An olive tree never dies, unless you intentionally try to kill it, but it doesn't die on its own. When the olive tree begins to die on the top, it dies and falls apart, but the roots shoot up a new shoot above the ground, and it grows into a new tree. An olive tree lasts for about 1,000 to 2,000 years, and then it dies, quote, and then it sends up a new root and keeps on going. So it's a tree of eternality. And God says, I've cut it down in judgment, but don't worry, the root, the trunk, the stump is still alive, and a new shoot will rise up from the root of David. It was the promise to restore the throne because the humans failed to do it. This is the point that he's painting. A line from Isaiah chapter 11, sorry, the root from Isaiah chapter 11. 
And so he mixes these two imageries of line, absolute power, and kingship with the root of David being cut off, dead, and gone. You would think it no longer has power or life anymore, but God promised he would restore it, and it would become even more powerful and more ruling than it ever was before under David and Solomon. And there are many other prophecies that point to that. And so the elder says, look, that king, that new king rising up out of the ground, he is worthy to do it. Now this communicates power. Now listen, he says, he heard the elder say this. Verse 6, Then when I saw the standing in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures in the middle of the elders, a lamb that appeared to have been killed, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So when John looks, he sees a lamb. Uh, an innocent little lamb. Now, it's not a female lamb, which is an ew, E-W-E. It's a male lamb because it has horns. And the male lambs are rams. And so he sees his ram. But it's called a lamb because lamb is just the umbrella term for both the male and the female. And so he sees his ram. And the ram is a symbol of sacrifice, weakness, killing it for something else. This would tie into Isaiah 53. We know this passage. Okay, the sacrificial lamb. The prophecy that the Messiah would be sacrificed on our behalf. But he has seven horns, meaning, and what first his neck is slit, which you don't get any more pathetic and weak than a lamb with a neck slit. It communicates absolute weakness. It communicates sacrifice. It, creates, it communicates innocence, vulnerability. But this lamb has seven horns. So even though at first you would think weak and pathetic sacrifice for a sin, you also see these seven horns, which represents seven is completion, but also has seven eyes, which means its knowledge is all-encompassing. It knows all things, which also would communicate power. So its horns represent authority, meaning its power is complete. And its eyes represent knowledge, which means its knowledge is complete. And then we're told that the seven eyes are also the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit that go out into all the world and guide everything. And so this is what he sees. But this is really important. This is the second John heard and saw. He hears about the lion, but when he looks to see the lion, he sees a lamb instead. Meaning that the hearing and the seeing are two sides of the coin equating one thing. Jesus is the lion, and he is the lamb. He's one and the same. Every time you see that I heard, but then I looked and saw, they're the exact same thing. And we know that. We're used to this imagery all throughout the Bible. They're the exact same thing. And this is the one that is worthy. And so what he's communicating is that he's worthy because both his kingship and his sacrifice. Then he came, and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders threw themselves to the ground before the Lamb, each of them with had a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And then they began to praise and worship him. No longer worshiping Yahweh, but now Jesus. And you only worship God. So that means Jesus is God. Jesus walks up and he takes the title deed to the earth. He is able to take it because he is human. God gave the title deed to a human. He is not in the business of taking things back. Only a human can claim the title deed. Therefore, Jesus had to be a human so he could claim the title deed. 
But no human is without sin and capable of actually claiming the title deed, let alone defeating Satan, let alone redeeming your creation. So you had to be God. And we talked about this earlier. This is why Jesus had to be the God-man. He had to be a human because only humans have sinned. Therefore, only a human can die for the sins of the world. He had to be a human because only a human can die. And you have to die in order to pay for the penalty of sin. He had to be a human because he had to claim the title deed. And only a human can do that. He also became a human in order to learn what it's like to be a human so that we can come to him and relate to him and he can relate to us. But he also had to be God because only God can live a sinless life. And therefore, when he dies, he's not paying for his own sins. He can pay for your sins. But he also had to be God because only God can conquer sin, grave, death, and the devil. This is why your salvation is completely dependent upon him being the God-man or now, in the words of Revelation, the lion lamb. The lion lamb. The king and the sacrifice. And he's the only one worthy who can take the title deed back and claim it. He paid off the mortgage through his death. And now, in the, and then he comes in and dwells us and he gives us the right to have life. And then this is about the second coming where he's going to come back and clean house. Remove all the squatters, get rid of the, the, the vandalism, the drugs, everything that we've done to the earth. This is where I think it gets really cool. You have to put this all together. Think of it like a movie. And there are multiple scenes that you have to have in order to understand what is truly happening here. The first scene starts in the First Testament where no human is able to enter the presence of God. Sin has already wreaked havoc. The world has fallen. The title deed is lost to humans. Satan is ruling. And no one is able to enter into the presence of God because none are without sin. The second member of the Trinity is there, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He's not Jesus yet because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity become flesh. It's just the second member of the Trinity. What that looks like, we don't know. We're not really given a glimpse of that. This is the first scene. Heaven is vacant of humans because humans, heaven and earth were together. But when humans sinned, earth fell from heaven and we are now separate. Death is separation. We no longer come in the presence of God. We can no longer enter the Trinity. And so they're there. The only thing that is in heaven is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all these angelic sons of God, divine beings. Every single image of heaven we get, we see that. We've already talked about that. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 7. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 22. This is the first scene. The second scene is that the second member of the Trinity, of the Godhood, becomes flesh. He becomes born as a little baby boy, putting on flesh, whatever that means. He's not half human and half God. He's 100% God and 100% human, but it's not all mixed together and it's not separate. Whatever it is, it is that. He is complex and indescribable because he is a second member of the Trinity in flesh. The incarnation, which literally means in flesh. He becomes a boy. Luke chapter 2 tells us the birth of Jesus as a little boy. Your king has come, the angels say to the shepherds. First John chapter 1, 14 says, And the word was God, and the word was with God. Sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, chapter 4, verse 14, became flesh. He is God and man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 says, And the God, then Jesus 
though being God and equal with God, did not see his Godhood as something to be exploited over people, but rather emptied himself and became a human. These passages clearly point to the second member becoming a human. And so this is the second scene that we see. He is going to exercise his divine right over the earth as the perfect human. The third scene, so if we're watching a movie, the third scene then moves to a different area. The third scene is Jesus' resurrection. We see this in Luke chapter 24 when he's raised from the grave and he comes back to life. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he's conquered the grave and given the right to sin the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he's purified for sin and therefore has the right to rule. He's resurrected from the grave. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 envisions Jesus being taken up into the heavens, right? The ascension. The disciples are talking to him, and he goes up into the heavens, and he goes into the clouds, like Daniel 7 says, he's the cloud writer, and he disappears into heaven. Now, you would think that's the end of the story. That's where our stories always end. Jesus is God, he's born as a human, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven, and everything from that point on is just what's happening with us humans in the book of Acts and the epistles. That's not where it ends. The fourth scene Camera angle number one is Yahweh sitting in the throne with this scroll. No one's worthy to open it. John is crying because no one's worthy to open it. And then one of the, the elders says, Behold, the Lion of Judah. Oh, I should remember that, right? That's what he was called in the Gospels, and the Gospels have happened. He says the, the, the Lamb has been sacrificed. John knows that. He knows the Gospels. He wrote one of them. It's happened, right? So that's camera angle number one in the, the, the fourth scene. But then the camera angle shifts to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, Jesus pops up out of the clouds. And Daniel 7 says, Behold, one like the Son of Man was approaching the throne of God with the clouds. No angels surrounding him, because that's the only way you can get in God's presence if you're without sin or angels or you have the blood of Christ. So this being comes without angels. There's no atonement for sins. He comes before the throne of God. And he puts out his hand, and God hands him all glory, all power, all sovereignty. The camera angle shifts to a different angle, and what you see is God taking the scroll and putting it in Jesus' hand. And then Jesus takes the throne. When you put it all together, that's what you have. You have to put Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 5 together. And what you see is in the beginning of time, Daniel gives you a vision of this God-man approaching the throne and receiving all glory and power and sovereignty. And you're like, what do I do with that? Then Luke gives you an image of Jesus sending into heaven. You're like, okay, that's interesting. End of story for Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit now. And then Revelation gives you this scene of him taking the scroll. And when you put it all together, this is what you realize is happening. Jesus sends into heaven... And as he's ascending up into heaven, John is up there pre the ascension, ascension, not chronology in his life, but in the vision, chronologically speaking. He's up there pre-ascension, and they're looking around to see who is worthy. And the elder says, don't worry, the lamb has already died. And all of a sudden, Daniel 7 shows Jesus popping up through the clouds. So the disciples see him disappearing in the clouds, and the camera switches to seeing him come through the clouds into heaven. And he comes walking with the clouds, because clouds communicate divinity. And he walks up to God, and God hands him the title to the earth. But he doesn't just hand him that. Remember Philippians chapter 2 says, Because he was obedient to God, even the point of death, God gave him the right to sit on the throne of God. 
Hebrews says, because he was obedient, God gave him the right to sit on the throne. And here's the question. If the second member of the Trinity has always been God, according to Philippians chapter 2, then he's always had authority, sovereignty, and power. So when did he not have it to have to get it back in Daniel 7? When did he not have it to get it back in Revelation chapter 5? Where Philippians tells us he emptied himself and became a human. Hebrews tells us that he lowered himself a little lower than the angels for a little while. But now that he's made atonement for sins, he has proven his right to take that all back again. He temporarily gave it up. Like when I wrestle my daughters. I, did I use this example? I've used it many times in the past, but I didn't know about this class. When I wrestle my daughters, I could crush them at any moment. But my love says I'm going to restrain myself. And I'm not going to crush them because I love them. It's not because I've lost my power. Philippians 2 is not saying that. I didn't give it up and put it in a box on the shelf for the time of wrestling with them. And hopefully I can grab it quickly if somebody attacks us. I just chose not to exercise it. And so Jesus chose not to exercise his all-knowingness, his all-power, so that he can know what it's like to be a human. But when he was obedient to God, God says, you have the right to take all that back again. You have the right to exercise it again. And this is the image that you're seeing here. If you put all these scenes together, this is the image. The title D was lost by us. God sent Jesus to become the God-man. Now that he's made atonement for sins and taken the title D back, then heaven shows us in Revelation the world, the heaven, waiting for him to come back to heaven from earth to take it. And Daniel 7 shows us him taking it. And then in Revelation 5 goes back to Jesus sitting on the throne. Does that make sense? This is where it's so cool. This is all the imagery. They're the piece of the puzzle. And like many movies, there's not always in chronological order. But there's a reason it's not in chronological order. And so when he takes the throne, the camera goes to the next scene. And in verse 9 it says, You are worthy, the elders say, and the four living creatures, to take the scroll and open the seals. Now notice when they were singing, they said, You, Yahweh, are worthy of worship because you created us and sustained us. But here they say, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, people, and nation. You have appointed them as a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. This is what they sing. You are worthy of praise because you conquered the grave and you gave up your own life to pay off the mortgage, so to speak, to purchase humans who are sinners and could not pay for their own sins and their own debt, to take them back with your own blood. That's what Daniel 7 is communicating. That's what Revelation 5 is communicating. And this is what they're praising him for. So Yahweh is praised for being Lord and creator and sustainer over all of creation. And Jesus being praised for being Lord and Redeemer and Purchaser of all humans from every tribe, every language, and every nation through his blood so that he could take the title deed of the earth. And guess what? He's now the human who has the right to have the title deed. But what does he say to us all throughout Ephesians and Peter? That he will, make, he will resurrect us as the second fruits and make us co-rulers and co-heirs with him. It wasn't just fine. 
You guys couldn't do as a human, and it has to be human, so I'll be the human, and now I'm going to rule, and you all just have to suffer for all eternity and know that I'm the ruler because you messed up. He says, I want to make you co-rulers and co-heirs. I'm going to sit you on my throne with me, and we're going to rule all eternity like you were supposed to in the Garden of Eden. This is the image of heaven that you have. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels in the circle around the throne. Now you see the outer circle, as well as the living creatures and the elders. Their number was 10,000 times 10,000. This basically means they're uncountable. Thousands times thousands, all of whom were singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was killed, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Why are you worthy to receive all this? Because you were killed. Philippians chapter 2. He was given the right to sit on the throne because he emptied himself and was obedient to the point of death. First Peter. Jesus, God vindicated Jesus because he made atonement for sins. This is all in parallel with all the epistles. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under earth and the sea and all them singing to the one who seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory, ruling and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying, Amen, meaning truly, truly. And the elders threw themselves to the ground and worshipped. This is the most important scene in all of Revelation 4 and 5 is the absolute worship and adoration of Yahweh, who is absolutely unique and uncomprehendable and unapproachable because of his divine sovereignty. And he is worthy of worship because he is creator and sustainer. And then the second member of the Trinity, who used to sit on the throne next to him, empties himself, according to Philippians 2, and becomes a little baby boy and grows up and suffers and is persecuted and learns obedience according to Luke and then ultimately gives up his life for you to atone for your sins as the God-man. And then Daniel 7 shows him going back up into heaven after his ascension, walking up to the throne. And Daniel in Revelation 5 shows him taking the title to the earth and reclaiming it and then receiving once again all the adoration and worship that he is worthy of as God, but now he's being worshipped in a new way as Redeemer, as one who shed his blood to purchase all people of every tribe and every language. And now he can sit on the throne and all of the earth and all of creation sings his praise. And I don't know if you would take this literally all, all, when it said all of Israel was there to hear Jesus, it didn't literally mean every single person. I mean, it just, I think it just communicates the fact that there's not a place in the earth where there are not believers or angels or people who recognize the sovereignty of Jesus and his worthiness that are praising him. Now, this is important for you to understand. This is not the future. This is not the future. This is the past for us. Revelation is often out of chronology. Everybody agrees that when we get to chapter 12, chapter 12 is not the future. It doesn't matter what view you take. Everyone agrees chapter 12 is not the future. Chapter 12 goes back to the beginning of time of Israel, portrays her as a woman who gives birth to the Messiah, who ascends into heaven, and then the, the believers are birthed out of that. And the dragons constantly conquer. Everybody agrees that that's a summary of all of human history. So it's not unusual for Revelation to not be in chronological order. Now, how do I know that this is not the future? 
because the context makes it clear. This is the first time the lamb comes back into heaven. This is the first time that the lamb takes the scroll. This is the first time that the lamb is vindicated. This is the first time that the lamb is re-enthroned. It's not like he was enthroned and that all happened, and then he gets off the throne for thousands of years in the future to do it all again for a future fulfillment. This is the first time. There's no human in heaven. And this is what's so beautiful about this scene. There's no human here. Jesus atoned for sins. He takes the throne. They sing a song that he has now redeemed people from every tribe and every nation and every language. That shows you that this is not future. It's this, this just happened. This song is brand new. Later we're going to be told that it's a new song. And then he takes the throne. And you know what happens next? The world begins to be judged in chapter 6. But then in chapter 6, in the fifth seal, you see heaven with believers in it. And then in chapter 7, he zooms in and makes a really big deal about humans being in heaven for the first time ever. The brief scene of the martyrs, which a lot of people argue that the martyrs are not in heaven yet. They may not be martyrs or just witnesses. They might be on earth crying out for justice, or they might be in heaven crying for justice. But the first scene that we see is chapter 7. And this is made a big, big, big deal of. The narrator goes on and on about how amazing it is that humans are in heaven, uncountable from every tribe and every language, which matches up to this song that is sung. This is the past, and making it clear, now for the first time ever in all the Bible, you can now expect in chapter 7 to see humans in heaven. And I think 7 encompasses all of human history. But we'll talk about that later. There's a little bit disagreement between many people in the futurists of whether this is future or whether this is past. I take the view that this is past. This is all happening around the cross. I think it makes sense of the entire Bible as well as this context. I think it's, it's too cool and too well pieced together as puzzle pieces to not be that. One of the ways that I test, this is not a guarantee, but one of the ways that I test the view is if you take this puzzle piece and stick it in there, does it make sense with all the other puzzle pieces around it? If it seems out of place, then it might be cut really close but it doesn't make sense. And I think this fits perfectly. I'm not saying that's ironclad proof. I'm not saying I'm right and everybody's wrong. I mean, I kind of am because that's my opinion, everybody's opinion, they think it's right. But I'm not saying I'm gonna die for that and argue against you and I'm right and I know everything and you don't. I mean, I'm pretty convinced, but I'm not willing to say I know everything. I just think it fits so perfectly into Daniel 7 and Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews 1 and, and Luke chapter 24 and in and, and, uh, and Acts chapter 1 to not be it. But it doesn't matter what view you take, and it doesn't matter whether this is past or future, everyone agrees that this is an absolute beautiful, beautiful image of just the absolute, holy, unique, raw power of Yahweh, who is worthy to be worshipped unlike any other being, who sent the God-man, the lion-lamb, to redeem all humans, from all parts of the earth, of every tribe and language that no other God has ever done so that we can all enter the presence of God and worship him in a way that no other God has made available. And that is the focus. That is the focus. And this is the two most important chapters 
and all of Revelation. Because without this, nothing else can happen and nothing else matters. Does that make sense? Lord, we praise you now for who you are. We praise you that you go way beyond what I could do justice here. My words, my descriptions still pale in comparison to what is really truly happening in the wall of his glory. And even though I have studied this and written about this, even tonight I still just feel so struck by how cool this is. To read and to write is not as cool to speak and to proclaim. And I'm just blown away by how awesome and glorious and powerful you are. And so my prayer right now is, as we go back into life, and life is brutal, life is chaos, life has anxiety, life has depression, life has distractions. I pray that you just press this image so powerfully in our minds that we would be changed by it and that we wouldn't be able to do life the same after reading this. In Jesus' name, amen.